Hello and welcome to part six of the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by the Countdown crew, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast, we're answering the age-old question of whether it's better to be a pig or a fascist in our review of Miyazaki's 1992 adventure film, Porco Rosso. But first, how are you guys? I'm doing well, Scott, and I think it is better to be a pig. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We, we've solved the question, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty easy answer, honestly, yeah. I didn't have to think too hard about it. Scott Shelton looks like he, he might have a counterpoint to make. Scott well, Shelton, look, I, I'm, I'm just contemplating the zone of interest this coming weekend, wondering um, what that's going to have to say about being a fascist. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not of two minds, but I'm curious how my perspective might develop in the next few days. I'm missing some context here. This is a new new movie about uh, concentration camp um, that is is coming out, and that I believe Scott is going to be watching at the New York Film Festival. New film by Jonathan Glazer. So maybe yeah. some some new truths to be unearthed there about uh, fascism, as much as much as can be unearthed. The context of the film is that it is about a family who lives adjacent to a concentration camp. Yeah, um, who are not, the family are is. Like I assume the parents are both Nazis. In fact, I think one of them is is a particularly bad Nazi. But it, the film is about, you know, there is is told from their perspective. So I think it's it's meant to be not challenging necessarily, but it, it's supposed to be a very powerful film. So we'll see. I don't think that my opinion about fascists is going to change too much. Yeah. Um, prob- also, probably hi. Not. I'm, I'm here as well. <laughs> yeah. How are you? <laughs> no, I'm good. Um, I'm I'm in movie overdrive right now. We're so locked in. We've never been more back. Saw uh, Richard Linklater's new film Hitman last night, and I it was oh, a hit. Man. It was a hit, is what I have to say. Uh, look, you know, the, the, we may be talking mostly uh, about a pig, as well as uh, you know, a, a sort of a, a romance ish. Um, that happens in this film, and you know maybe there's some similarities to to Hitman in in the most vague and broadest sense. Yeah, well, I can't uh, can't speak on that. Won't be able to speak on that, obviously. But um, eventually, I will, and sure. I'm uh, very excited, obviously, for Hitman. Probably, you know, second only to Killers of the Flower Moon in terms of movies that I'm looking forward to for the rest of the year. Um, so, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it, Scott. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Scott, but, do you want to just spend this episode just talking about that? Let's let's just pivot this into the link later <laughs> countdown. How about that? I'm I'm all on board for that. Maybe uh, someday. Are we not Maybe saving someday. that? Not keeping our powder dry for merrily we roll along in 2043 or whatever? That's true. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and he'll, we'll have many more films to talk about by then. Yeah. But I, I think you're right. I think that's the logical logical play there. But yeah, I can't uh, wait for until episode t- 2077 in 2043 i think we'll probably be dead yes. well no we yeah. Might. yeah we might be dead yeah but uh, I, I was just trying to do some math and yeah i'm not going to try to do that math anymore um all right <laughs> as mentioned our film today is porco rosso miyazaki's 1992 film Set primarily along the Adriatic coast, Porco Rosso is the tale of a freelance fighter pilot in 1929 who has been cursed to have the head of a pig but the body of a human. Porco, voiced by Michael Keaton, makes a living post-war as a bounty hunter, and a successful one. But as the film opens, a new rival enters the picture in the form of the dashing American flying ace Donald Curtis, voiced by Carrie Elways. Curtis quickly develops a hatred for Porco, who is loved by the beautiful Madame Gina, voiced by Susan Egan, the woman that Curtis himself is in love with. After Curtis attacks Porco, damaging his plane severely, Porco flees to Milan, where he discovers that his regular mechanic, Piccolo, has handed over his duties to his 17-year-old granddaughter, Fio, voiced by Kimberly Williams Paisley. Although Porco initially views Fio with skepticism, the two form an unlikely bond, as Fio's earnest optimism starts to win over the nihilistic Porco. Feeling that the world is on the verge of passing him by, Porco, with the help of Fio, will have to turn back the clock one more time if he's to evade the fascist Italian government, conquer his American rival, Curtis, and perhaps discover something truly worth fighting for in the process. 
Jay, we'll start with you. Does Miyazaki's riff on the classic Hollywood melodrama capture all the action and romance of the era, or do Porco's adventures stall out like the engine on his famous red plane? I think it does a really good job. Let's let's start with I think my highest what I thought most highly of, which is just the way this looked. I think, you know, the last few ones we saw were very quick in succession. I don't remember us saying much about how they might have improved visually, but this one felt like it stepped up quite a bit. Like it, it was just gorgeous from minute one. I also don't know if maybe like, you know, my stream to my TV was having a particularly good day compared to the older ones, but it felt like, you know, there was, it, it was just like a new level of gorgeous. As for, and again, the action, you know, absolutely brought it. You know, it was entertaining. It was funny. You know, I like the characters a lot too. I think what I'm kind of dancing around right now, and I'm not sure how to bring up, and maybe we shouldn't jump into this right away, is like, what happened in this movie? Because I think, <laughs> no, I'm serious, because I think that there are so, I mean, I, I feel like there are at least three solid ways you could interpret what has happened to Porco leading into and during the movie. And I think you know, maybe that's something really cool, right? Because as a child, like, you know, you could be watching this and have one interpretation, you know, as an adult, you could have one and maybe like a couple different interpretations, you know, thinking about like what Porco's curse is and why it may or may not be lifted and what happened to him, you know, pre the curse, right? Like I, and that's where I found like most of my attention gravitating to is like, what version of the story, you know, did you guys see? And I'm, you know, happy to talk about mine as well but you know as we're kind of weaving through that with you know the hijinks involving Theo and uh I'm already blanking on the name of the game Mama Ayato Gang uh and you know the love story with Madame Gina it's like I think I think there are just like a few very different ways to feel like examine Porco right and I think no matter which way you go I think it's still a very entertaining story you know beautifully told i think you know it, it very much feels like another miyazaki adventure with the maybe one very noticeable change of now we have a middle-aged man protagonist rather than you know a young child even if some of the other tropes around like you know younger protagonists are still there for example how much uh all the bad guys seem to love theo by the end like you know another classic case of like somewhat morally ambiguous older men liking this younger female protagonist um, which Scott Harvey, I know you love, but yeah, I think it, I think it just, it, it told a very new kind of story, you know, by focusing on like this older man and, you know, maybe, maybe by making the protagonist a little bit older, like you know, to me as an older viewer, you know, that what I interpret to be his struggles feel like even closer to home just because like, you know, it, it feels like it's not child going through it's not that children can't go through this but when a child goes through something i feel like you know i might they might respond a little more differently or they're not capable of responding the way we are so i don't know there, there's just a lot of like you know interesting ways i think we could put porco's story through but i think no matter which way you go ultimately like pretty good time scott your thoughts yeah i felt like we really jumped in there which i, I think it makes sense why o overall i think just to but back out from that because i do think it's worth discussing to your point jay i just want to say that i just felt like this film was another example of miyazaki just having a good time i mean even if you just sort of go and look at why the film was made at all or what the original intent of the film was it was a short film meant to be in-flight entertainment for japan airlines and who had like worked with like contracted and paid for studio ghibli to make them have like have some exclusive entertainment like pretty wild like context for the film it then expanded and became a feature-length film japan airlines still actually aired it many months i think before it actually released in theaters which is why the text at the beginning of the film is in like seven or eight different languages simultaneously um, so like, just like really bizarre context for why this film was made. It's also sort of like of the ilk of a Nausicaa where Miyazaki made a manga and then based another, like, then like, you know, adapted a movie out of it and, and made Porco Rosso. And I just think that that sort of vibe of the film sort of, I think kind of helps explain why maybe there are some deeper conversations that we can have as the podcast goes on. But even though this is taking 
probably the the largest spin like back towards action adventure since you know the times of, of pre Ghibli Nausicaa and and Castle of Cagliostro. It still also has the vibe and the feel of the more recent works that we've talked about being Totoro and and Kiki's Delivery Service. Like I think ultimately what happens in this movie is like not very much. <laughs> like not very much happens in this movie. And that is sort of really it really feels like the mode that Miyazaki has sort of been operating in for, you know, the last five or six years of movies. I'm forgetting the exact years on, on some of these films. But for you know, for the last half a decade, he's sort of been operating at that at that level. And that level is really, really productive and really works. I think the sort of spin back towards like an action, a more action focused movie with that vibe, I think was really cool to see and experience and to feel. I think overall, the character of Porco Rosso is maybe I don't know if it's because of the middle aged man of it all that you were describing, Jay, or or for some other reason, but I did care maybe like a little bit less and i felt a little bit less invested in in him as 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 a person versus like kiki or may and satsuki from totoro yeah the truth is i i guess i just felt a little bit less invested in him than some of the more recent uh protagonists we've seen so i think that led to me feeling a little bit more disconnected to this film and then then the more recent films that we've talked about where I really feel like, you know, from almost minute one, I was really connected into like the heartbeat of the film with those central characters. Part of that probably is just sort of like the almost like the unfamiliarity of the protagonist of this movie, like the notion of being like a fighter pilot who's not retired, but like a veteran of World War One flying around the coast of Italy and sort of just being in some ways like a hero but also like a deadbeat is the truth like it, it it doesn't necessarily lend itself to feeling super invested invest invest being invested in him especially when you add that extra layer of like not only is this person not someone that's necessarily relatable to me but they're a pig uh so you know maybe i sound a little bit like scott harvey there saying that but overall I, look i still ultimately got got into the movie pretty well i think that the fact that it starts pretty quickly with an action set piece, although I think somewhat standard for Miyazaki films. When we're talking about action and adventure, I think you see that in you see that in in Nausicaa, you see that in Castle in the Sky, you see that in Cagliostro. That there is like a very mini set piece at the beginning of these movies. I think that does sort of smooth smooth it over a little, because for me, it's not really until you get into the film a little bit where it really picks up and really grabs me. But overall, it's a great time. I think the sort of big dogfight at the end of the film the sort of climactic dogfight and which then becomes a fist fight i think i actually think that that works really well I, I really enjoyed that and i think it comes together for me for that with the maybe the weirdness that you were pointing out uh, jay aside maybe but i sometimes just don't even know what to make of all that it's it's not like an excuse or an explanation it's just like you know this is kind of what i expect from from anime at times it's a trope of the genre. I don't know how seriously to take it. It's weird. It, like it is weird, but I, and I just don't know what to make of it, but it's there. Um, luckily it was not, it didn't overshadow the sort of main event of the, of the climactic scenes and overall a really enjoyable movie. Sorry, which trope are you referring to? Uh, like the men ogling over women. Oh, yeah. sure. I really enjoyed this um, as well. I had not seen this one. This was one of the ones that was the first time watch for me. So I didn't really know what to expect. I thought it was more of a war movie than it actually is. But, it, it you know, I, I mentioned it there in the intro. But this is like kind of an ode to like classic Hollywood melodramas in a way. Like this is like a Casablanca almost style movie with, you know, it fuses like the action and romance, like the setting along like the, you know, European coast. I mean, I guess Casablanca is in Africa, but still. Um, it has sort of the same look about it. Um, and, you know, even Porco himself is almost this sort of nihilistic Rick-like character from Casablanca. I, I guess I would be disagree slightly with, with um, Scott. Not, I mean, not disagree, but we just had different um, 
takes on the character, I guess, because I, I loved the character of Porco. Um, I thought he brought something different. I think especially watching this after the last couple of movies, it's interesting, especially like watching after watching Kiki's Delivery Service and, you know, you have the coming of age storyline. You know, you have somebody who is like trying to, you know, find their their way in life and sort of um, make it on their own. Whereas this movie is almost at the opposite end of the spectrum where you have Porca who kind of seems to be at the end of his rope a little bit. Like he's kind of wondering, is there a place for him um, in you know, le left in this world that he exists in. He's not going to align himself with the fascists. He's not going to align himself with the pirates, right? You know, he has this opportunity to sort of um, settle down possibly with Gina, but he doesn't really seem interested in her affections either. Um, so he's kind of a character just looking for purpose in his life and, you know, wondering if he's he's past it. Um, which I think is a, a narrative and, um, you know, a, a type of person that we haven't seen in, in a Miyazaki film before. And I also think Michael Keaton is giving a wonderful sort of deadpan vocal performance um, as this character. I thought he was perfect in that role. So I thought that was, you know, the strongest part of the movie to me was just the character of Porco. And that kind of carried me through some of the some of the aimlessness, maybe a little bit. You know, again, I, aimlessness is never really a problem for me. Um, but it maybe it doesn't quite feel as like like Miyazaki is as in control as he is in something like Porco Ross or in a Kiki's Liver Service or My Neighbor Totoro, right? Um, and so I, I do I do hear maybe where some of the the impatience comes a little bit with like you know what's what's going on exactly because it, there's you know it, it's not totally clear I guess at all times you know he's he's just this freelance pilot. He's kind of bouncing around, you know, there's not like an end goal of like, what are we trying to to do here? Uh, it, you know, like we've said, it just ends up in a fist fight between the two rivals really. Um, so that kind of tells you that the stakes are a lot lower despite, you know, the movie talking about things like fascism. And again, there's, you know, a long sort of dream sequence and um, Porco is going through, you know, some very real, stuff it still feels light and fun and you know just like a, a proper Miyazaki romp and um I'm, I'm glad that you know we had the opportunity to to watch this uh because I don't know when I would have got to it I don't really know why I didn't get to it the first time around but I thought it was a great time and it's nice to see um like Scott, Scott kind of said you know he's fusing that the action instincts of something like Cagliostro with you know, the vibes of the last couple of movies. So I had a great time with this one. Um, moving on to talk a little bit about the voice cast, I suppose. Um, you have Michael Keaton, who I mentioned, is really the star of, of this movie as Porco. Um, you know, you have the only other recognizable name really being Carrie Elwes as, um, as Curtis, as the American rival. I mentioned Kimberly Williams Paisley as... Um, as Fio, you have Susan Egan as Gina. Um, anyone, you know, particularly stand out to you, you know, definitely talk about Michael Keaton. Did you think his performance helped or hurt your, you know, perspective on the character of Porco? Yeah, I, I think Michael Keaton, yeah, I think it's obviously the best place to start there. I warmed up to this performance overall, but I think honestly, maybe the one of the main things that I'm identifying in the difference between, in my experience, some in your experience, Scott, is that I what didn't immediately gravitate towards the Keaton performance here. I thought the gravelly deadpan felt like kind of over the top a bit early on in the film. And it took some getting used to like it felt un, it, it felt very unfamiliar for the Miyazaki movies or, or maybe it felt like something like kind of a, like more adjacent to Cagliostro in a way that I wasn't really sure came off well in this context but once once i did sort of sit with that character and i think once he really you saw you like you see him interact with gina and you start i think specifically as you start to understand that dynamic i think that's when i started to warm up to the performance and the character that's not like a oh it should have been played differently because ultimately i do think it matches the character well it just it just took me a little while to get used to it 
Some of it also, frankly, could be how the Japanese translates into English and is localized. Um, maybe they're in, in I could I could see a world in which maybe there just isn't like a good, you know, sort of like cultural equivalence in that introduction. Maybe I, obviously I, I can't say for certain, but I could also see how that might play a role just because, again, I, I think it took about 20, 20 to 30 minutes for me to really warm up to the character. Once I did, I did enjoy it. And it, it sort of went pretty smoothly from there. I think just because of sort of like the rem, the remove, how, like how removed he is and how isolated and how conservative he is as a character in terms of his personality. Again, I find it harder to connect with and really try to penetrate what's going on with the character, which again, leaves me feeling a little bit cold and at a distance from him. But again, I, I don't necessarily think those things are unintentional or, or a negative. I think it was just a reality for my experience. So I think Keaton's good. But he's not going to be a memorable performance for me, I don't think, in in the Miyazaki sort of filmography versus some of the, you know, more not even necessarily more colorful characters, but just characters that I felt I, I resonated with more on an emotional level. That said, I do think that the supporting cast does come together pretty nicely. I really did enjoy Carrie Elwes as the sort of pseudo villain. I think he as much as as Porco Rosso is like the super again, reserved type figure, this American Donald Curtis is this sort of almost like flamboyant, um, arrogant, almost like Hollywood media, like media wannabe kind of care, like hotshot that comes around and thinks he's a big deal and has a lot to prove and a chip on his and a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. And I think Carrie Elways plays that pretty well. And when you put other, you know, other members of the supporting cast, particularly like Mr. Piccolo, like David Ogden Styers, who's cooking, I'd say. I think he, he's definitely definitely doing something a little different in, in this. And, and then you combine that with sort of maybe some more emotion from your Susan Egan uh, playing Madame Gina or your Kimberly, William, uh, Kimberly Williams playing Theo. I think that it, it all comes together pretty nicely in the supporting cast. Again, I'm not sure that the that the ultimately this cast is as memorable as some of the performances in the other movies, but it does end up holding its own, I think, thanks to some sort of strong performances deeper down the cast list. Yeah, I don't I don't think I it's funny, Sky. Like as I was trying to tell you in the comments, I don't think I could really add much just because I, I really do agree. I think maybe where I differ slightly is I think from the moment we first see Porco, I am a lot more drawn to him. There was just something very cool about his vibe, just like sitting on the beach. I think he had like a magazine over his head, a glass of wine out and, you know, just like sitting in the shade. You know, I think maybe the radio was playing or something. He's so uh, European, you know? Yeah. And it was, you know, there was just, there was something very cool about that. And when, you know, you kind of get the gruff gravelly Keaton to start, I mean, like it was an immediate recognition for me. I'm like, oh my God, like this, this, you know, not only is that Michael Keaton, it actually makes a lot of sense. I think from there it did take a little, like it did take a step back for me and then would only, you know, re-engage me after we got into some of the stuff later on. Um, you know, I think the story he tells, uh, the bedtime story he tells Theo, which by the way is like gotta be one of the worst bedtime stories ever, right? If you're actually trying to help someone fall asleep. Um, but, you know, that that's an example of, okay, like the performance starts to do well for me. I think you're right, or at least you know, I agree with your, POV that this might not be the most memorable voice cast when all is said and done, but I think for what it was ultimately very good. I thought uh, Brad Garrett as Capo was so funny. There was just a certain like manic energy about it. And he also looks a lot like Bluto, the villain from Popeye, the sailor man. And there was just something really funny about that. I don't know if that's, you know, something either of you watched growing up, but from the moment he appeared on screen and just the way he was acting, I was like, you know, it just, it really reminded me of, of that character. And I really enjoyed that. And then, like you said, Kimberly Williams Paisley also does a great job as Theo. I feel like, you know, some of the writing, <laughs> you know, and again, maybe it was just the way it was translated. or Maybe she just did say, you know, is it because I'm a woman? Don't think I'm a woman, you know, like seven times in the original uh, dub. Cause you know, I didn't, <laughs> that took me out of it a little bit. Not because like, it was wrong, but I was more like, I get it, you know, like, all right, like, we're, that's not what we're doing. At least I hope that's not what we're doing. Um, you know, like, but e either way, uh, I think her, her performance was well done. 
you know, even if there were just a couple of moments where it's like, ah, about, you know, her being a woman. And then, you know, those lines are like, my butt is bigger than it looks. I'm like, you're 17, <laughs> you're 17. He's a pig. <laughs> like he's a literal pig, but, or maybe he's not a literal pig. Uh, and again, maybe that's up for debate. Right. But <laughs> I believe only his face is a pig. If, well, okay. If, if, sure. Yeah, but, that's my okay. Wasn't going there, but yes. Also fair. Yeah. I mean, Michael Keaton, like I said, is the standout for me. I, uh, I just think it's something different right away. Again, like, you know, you think about the other movies. Yes, we have a lot of kids, of course. But then even, like, the adult characters that we have in these movies talk with, like, you know, this in this sort of high alto type voice or, like, you know, have this, you know, manicness, franticness, whatever you want to say, going on about them. Um, and then instantly this character just, like, distinguishes itself when he opens his mouth, which... I think, you know, the character physically distinguishes himself from anybody else that we've seen in uh, Miyazaki as well. So that makes sense. But it kind of just like the timbre of his voice and everything just tells you almost right away who this person is. So I really like that, um, that aspect of the performance. And yeah, I, I like, you know, that um, he is kind of this nihilistic guy. Um who again just feels a little tired of the world again i think you can get that in michael keaton's voice and um you know is kind of searching for for something to some reason to keep going and the the shell cracks a little bit um as as the movie goes on and as we get towards the ending and, and these relationships blossom but um i thought he was great i thought the supporting rest of the supporting cast does does their job. I do think, you know, some of the pirates, like it feels a little bit similar to insert random gang of villains that we've had in some of these other movies, you know, whether it's castle in the sky or, um, gotta do, we gotta do a, one of the questions in the, in the retrospective must be favorite gang. From, yeah. <laughs> from the series. Dola gang, Seriously. mama, Ayuto gang. The Dola gang. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, there's, there's been a few and it, it feels like the personalities of these villains are starting to blend together a little bit for me. So um, that was maybe uh, a down downside and something where the vocal performance didn't necessarily distinguish itself for me, but I think everybody, you know, puts in their shift. Um, I want to ask about the look of this film because, you know, talking about other similar things, we've had a few coastal towns now in these these movies it seems like whether it's again castle kind of early in castle in the sky of course kiki's delivery service um castle of cagliostro um and now we have you know this is set you know in a real place along the adriatic you know a lot in italy taking place was there anything about the look of this film i mean you know obviously i think we're all going to say it looks great but is there anything that stood out to you uh, visually in this movie, as opposed to, you know, some of the other movies and similar environments we've seen. I think at a high level, I mean, I mentioned that I thought it looked better. And I think to try to quantify or qualify that a little bit, it just felt more vibrant. And like, not, you know, just because there's like a, you know, bright red plane flying around, right? But even just that red, like, I'll just use that as an example. I feel like that's a, again, vibrant is the only word that really comes to mind. Um, I feel like we haven't seen a color like that in the other, in the earlier movies. Like, you know, maybe I'm wrong and I'm like forgetting something, but there feels just like a certain like shininess to this, you know, th there's a certain like exotic quality to the way like these particular coastal towns are drawn. Whereas, you know, if I think of, let's say, you know, the, the water and the towns by the water we see in Kiki's, they feel a little bit, you know, more like homey, even if they are still like big coastal towns, but they, you know, they feel a little more, I guess just like relaxed when you're like looking over them, but comparing to, you know, how the coast, the towns, you know, where we're flying over here, there, there's just, there just feels like a little bit more of a, a chaotic energy in the air. And just, there's just, it just feels like there's more going on, even if there actually is less on the screen. Um, can't really explain why, like, you know, the, I'm sure, you know, maybe a more trained eye could point out exactly what it is about the drawing that, you know, is, con is helping convey that, but that's just how I felt looking at it. Like, it, there wasn't maybe as much going on in the drawings of these coastal towns, but they just, they felt like, you know, more in your face, more like off the screen because of how bright and vibrantly they were drawn this time around. To me, at least. 
For me, I, I kind of actually had, a, not that this was an issue, but I, I guess I didn't have that experience. I thought it, it looked roughly the same um, in terms of quality for, at least for Kiki and, and Totoro, which I don't think is an issue. That wasn't like a problem for me. I think maybe one of the main differences is that it's the first, like there's only a short sequence where Kiki is flying in Kiki's delivery service. And the fact that we get so much more time in the sky, I think maybe there was a little bit more attention and care put into some of the hand-drawn um, clouds and things like that to make sort of the sky feel more, I don't know, lived in, if that's even the right way to describe it. But it, it does feel like there's more attention put there. But at least my own personal experience wasn't necessarily that I thought the animation was took this leaps and leaps and bounds advance uh, up in quality. But you know, maybe I just isn't am not giving enough respect to the to the pig uh, in, in this one. I think the cool part and one thing that we haven't talked about yet, but I'm sure is, is later on that the attention to detail put into the planes, I think is is a really cool facet, both in how they are animated, so the, the actual look and feel of it, but also just the design as well. I, I, you know, I'm not an aviation expert. I don't exactly know how planes looked and operated in, you know, the early 20th century, but I, I assume there is a, a few creative liberties taken to aesthetically make them sort of look different and cool in a way that otherwise they wouldn't immediately look. Um, and I think that's something that I really appreciated about the film. So it's not that the animation, I thought the animation quality was so different, but I think where it chose to, spend its its time and energy sort of perfecting what the the look and feel of the animation really stood out in the film and that was mainly in you know sort of the the skyline vistas and the and and the planes scott i don't know if you how you felt about it i think we have to just highlight one other visual moment i agree with you there i think um you know the the detail there is great I think uh, the detail on the bludgeoned faces at the end of the movie after the fist fight was was excellent. Um, just like the most sort of hor horrific like collection of bruises and welts and bumps and different shades of everything and swelling like you can't even believe. Um, I thought that was pretty fun and you know just very sort of cartoonish and goofy um in a way that i think isn't asynchronous with the, the spirit of the movie so but yeah the movie looks great it's a miyazaki movie of course it does um yeah anyway um so i wanted to revisit jay's point from the beginning of the review when he kind of just said what is this movie about um and it seems like it is open to a lot of interpretation thematically and, you know, literally in terms of, you know, what happens in the plot, I guess. But um, we, Jay and I were discussing off air the curse and how Porco comes to have a pig head. And it's not really said in much detail at all or described why why he does have this curse and how it came about, you know, what what put him in this position it's it's almost you know again in the last movie we, we talked about how light it was on like exposition as far as the whole witch thing it's just like she's a witch she flies on a broom she's got a talking cat you guys understand this here it's like he's got a pig head he was cursed you know nothing else needs to be said but i'm wondering if you guys you know have any theories maybe about how did, how did he end up in this situation? We do learn some about his backstory, about being a pilot in World War One, about sort of what what led him to, you know, living this sort of solitary life. And that was the scene that Jay was talking about earlier with the bedtime story um, and the sort of the hallucinatory sequence that happens with him when he's there in World War One. You know, does that give any insight to you guys, or do you guys truly think it it really is just don't worry about it? He's a pig. Well, I think you know this, this goes back to what I said and what you just alluded to. I think it is open to interpretation, and I think you know maybe you're not thinking that hard about this if you're a much younger viewer and like he's just a pig, and you know there was a curse put on him, and maybe you think like I did the first time. You know, it's brought up that like maybe you know, he ended up in like a war situation where someone on the other side did this to him or something. Like, I was like, I don't, I don't know. And then as I continue to watch it, you know, I, 
and I don't think this is like a bold take by any stretch. I imagine this is probably one of the more common theories that it's something essentially like self-inflicted. Like, you know, there's, there's, there's this like war going on inside himself, you know, and I, I feel like I'd have to watch this movie like two more times to really get into the nitty gritty of like, you know, what it is, but clearly like he doesn't feel, you know, deserving of, you know, whether you want to frame it a normal life, love, whatever, like he, he just feels like, you know, this is who he is. And it only feels like it's in those moments where he allows himself a little bit of vulnerability or a little bit of forgiveness or a little bit of light, you know, that we have the two references to wait, like, you know, show me your face or what happened to your face, you know, once after he's told Theo that story and she gets a passing glimpse at his quote unquote human or his human face. And then at the end of the movie, where again, maybe he's allowed himself a little bit of forgiveness, a little bit of, you know, like emotional breathing room to you know, eventually end up on the beach with Gina at the end. And, you know, Curtis is like, wait, like what happened to your face? So, you know, that, that feels like one viable and probably not that uncommon theory as to like what is happening here. You know, he, you know, very also very much shows this, his aversion to like him having that human life by, you know, by the fact that he's crossed out his, his face and like the, that old photo that Gina was showing him early on. Uh, you know, I took a cursory uh, pass at Reddit while we were off air briefly for a sec. And there are some people that think that he didn't have a big face at all. Um, based on the fact that, you know, you were just talking about in Kiki's how it's so nonchalant that she like flies around and has a talking, you know, talking cat or whatever. And it's like, no one really seems to react to the fact that, you know, he has a pig face when he's just like walking around and, you know, like a wanted man. And no one really seems to notice, oh, there's this like pig faced person here. Um, I don't think I'm willing to go. I don't think I'm, you know, seeing it that way, you know, at least after a first viewing, but I think the idea that, yeah, you know, this is something that he's kind of put upon himself, you know, telling everyone, or at least, you know, at the very least Gina, that it's just some like external curse to kind of cover that up. But then you see kind of the cracks in the story when, you know, he, he, again, he gives himself those, those moments of vulnerability and like maybe deserves to be a man after all. Um, I'll stop there because I, I think we should also circle back to the, as you described, like the hallucinate, the hallucination scene or the hallucinatory scene um, and what that might mean. But Scott Shelton, like curious to hear what you think about the curse first. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree with a lot of the sort of logic or theory that you laid out there. The way that I read the film is is, is pretty similar. I really felt like it was self-inflicted or self-imposed it or Maybe there is some mildly supernatural element to it. I think kind of like UJ, I almost want to revisit the scene where he where the, the the flashback is happening as he tells Fio what happened in the war and the relationship to um, Gina's one of her husbands. I don't know if it was her first husband or if it was a, a husband number or something different, but she, he's telling the story about how he led these men into battle and they were all basically slaughtered in in the dog fight and i think he feels a great shame now whether that that shame is what creates this sort of self-imposed curse on himself where he believes you know uh, you know being a pig is is shameful and dirty and he because because he feels shameful and dirty he he sort of almost bestows that curse on himself or there's something like a little bit not sinister but like more supernatural in that like he has committed this act of sort of shame and dishonor by not protecting the men he was responsible for in war and some like supernatural element, um, you know, bestowed this curse upon him that needs to be sort of earned away or lifted off. I, I don't. Yeah, I totally get why your head might go to like, oh, it's some magical so, sort of enemy place, some magical curse on him. I feel like Miyazaki like never really goes that direction, even even in a, even with having a movie about a witch like Kiki. That's like not not really the vibe of of Kiki or, or any of the magic there. I mean, there's not any magic, I guess I should say in Kiki. It's not really the kind of 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 approach I think he takes. And so a supernatural element I could understand or see. But I, I almost agree with you that it, that it could also be just sort of the self-imposed thing. And those I think the flashes of 
uh, in the film where you get this prof. I mean, with with Theo, you get the profile view of his human face. It's it's more implied than stated, I guess, at the end of the film that there is a there is a point with uh, at the end of the film where his face has maybe turned back to normal, at least briefly. I think that uh, it would really make sense for it to be this sort of psychological self-imposed element to me, because I think it's in these moments of sort of candor in the first instance and um, sort of self-realization, I think, in the second that the sort of curse lifts, you know, momentarily, if not, if not more permanently. I think that's one of like maybe the ambiguities of the end of the film is, is the moment where, um, you know, you know, Donald Curtis can see his face. Is it is it as brief and as fleeting as the moment that Theo can see his face or is it more permanent? And I think in those moments, like when he's telling the story and being candid with Theo about his experience, like he's realizing that maybe he's, you know, he's being honest about it. He's being open. He's realizing that there are there are limits to what he is capable of. He uh, and it, it's almost like a, a humbling moment for him to retell the story and to realize that like maybe it's not his fault, but he has survivor's guilt and that's an element of it. And in the second case, I think it's, he has this moment with Gina and with Theo for that matter as well, where he realized that maybe he's worthy of affection and love again. And that's something that he's sort of held at arm's length for years since this happened in the war. Like there's the whole subplot where Gina continues to wait on him in her garden you know, day after day, year after year, or whatever, for Porco, for Marcos to come to her and for them to be together. But he doesn't. And I think that there's a pretty strong implication that the reason for that is that he doesn't he doesn't believe that he deserves that based on his you know prior behavior, specifically related to this dogfight. It sounds like so it really feels like it's all wrapped up to me psychologically in that it I could hear a supernatural argument, but I really do think that it's all a lot about his self-image um, and his self-perception. So I do totally agree with you there, Jay. And and these two moments, um, I think, are chinks in that sort of wall that he's built around himself that, you know, keeps him from, you know, feeling love and and being hurt and being, um, you know, experiencing this you know deep sorrow for the loss of friends. Yeah, no, I think you pretty much nailed as far as my interpretation as well the survivor's guilt was what i was going to say i think is pretty clear from that um that hallucinatory sequence um that we've talked about you know and as a result of that him basically saying well i should have died as well um and so if, if since since i didn't die i'm gonna do like the worst thing I can to myself, which is to make myself live as a pig, which is basically the same as dying. Um, I, I think I make it say you'd say it's worse than dying, about. right? I mean, yeah, 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 arguably. Yeah. And only the uh, second worst thing you could do to yourself. The worst is make yourself a fascist. But it's true. yes, of course. Don't, don't be a pig. Uh, don't be a fascist. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, as you say, Scott, there's these these moments of where his face seems to be revealed two people and it's it's moments where affection and um and whatnot are being shown towards him and you know him reciprocating by sort of opening his heart a little bit in a way that um wasn't there before so yeah of course you know the pig thing is a little bit of a metaphor um it, it was always going to be i think i don't think it's maybe as complicated as you know um we yeah, as some people maybe have made it out to be. Um, from what does it, it does like it require an hours long deep Reddit deep dive? And yeah, probably not. Two thousand word post essay uh, to justify why Medusa was actually in the war and turned him into a pig. Probably not. Um, okay. But I'm sure if you want to do that, then that that option is available to you. From what it sounds right. like. Control A, that. delete my Reddit post. Okay, I will. No, post I, that. I just want ask like chat gpt to just write me that like write me two thousand words theorizing why medusa was in porco rosso or like you know in his backstory and is the one who made him look like a pig why would you want um, to spend time reading the output of that it's just two thousand <laughs> words um 
maybe moving on to a different topic <laughs> here at this point. Um, sure, what sure. did you guys think about the action in this movie? Um, you know, we have talked about, yes, it's it kind of continues with the vibes of the last couple of movies, but there's obviously a lot more um, action going on, you know, recalling um, the aerial action of some of the early films. Um, you know, did the dog fights, you know, strike a chord for you? Were you more of a fan of the fist fight at the end that we've talked a little bit about? Um, you know, were, were these sequences, do they keep you engaged in the film in between these character moments that we've talked a lot about? I thought so. I mean, I think it was Scott Shelton, you were pointing out, like there was so much attention to detail in these dog fights and other aerial scenes. Like I, I found them to be quite engaging. And again, you know, they, these scenes just feeling a little more vibrant to me personally than the ones we've seen before. None of the others were bad per se. It was just a different quality in these that again, like just made them pop off the screen a little bit more. And when we're seeing all those little details in the dog fight or Scott Harvey's, you talked about the little details on their face uh, at the end, you know, during the punch off, like I think it, it just adds so much to the storytelling. Um and it, it hadn't been as long uh, since the last one as I thought. In my mind, it had been like 10 years and maybe that justified like why it felt so much more visually advanced. I think it was actually only three um, after checking back into it. But uh, as I've stated, at least to me, you know, it felt like it had just taken like a, maybe a step in a different direction, not necessarily forward, like a little bit forward, maybe a little bit to the side rather than just like a strict upgrade. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the fist fight, as I've said, is, is I really enjoyed. Um, and I think even the the thematic significance of it, like from some of the points that we were just talking about, right? Like we have Porco's face, right? Which he already considers to be his worst feature or whatnot, just getting beat to an absolute pulp um, to where it's, it's even more, you know, hideous looking, I suppose. Um, and, you know, even still, you know, Gina and Theo show their affection towards him at the end. You know, they're giving him a kiss, whatever. Um, and I think that, that you know, again, is a moment of, hey, like, I've done this thing to myself. I've made myself what I consider to be, like, the ugliest, um, you know, thing I can imagine. And now it's even uglier. And yet there are still these people here who, you know, care about me, who love me. Maybe I don't have to do this to my myself anymore and so it's almost sort of this cathartic moment of him getting the pig beaten off of him so to speak yeah that's an Scott, interesting idea awesome. yeah yeah look i, I thought I, look i want to say the obvious because no one here is saying it and i just think that it's all in our minds and what needs to be said this film is not top gun maverick and this film is not creed 3 uh so you know neither the aerial dog yes. scenes or the boxing <laughs> scene at the end truly live up to that high watermark. I did, but like I was saying at the beginning when I was talking about how I did think that the final sort of climactic third act of the film with the big dogfight and the boxing match, you know, the more or less boxing match at the end of the film, I do think that delivers. I'm not convinced, honestly, that too much of the action earlier on in the film really hit the high points for me specifically maybe the opening sort of dogfight sequence with the Mama Ayudo gang. Some of that just feels like it's just the, the tech or the animation just like, isn't quite good enough, frankly, to like truly make me feel immersed in that action. When we've spent the last few years watching stuff, that's like some of the most insane, you know, action put to screen aerially. I think that if I were watching this as a kid, uh, or if I was watching this more temporally close to when the film was released, I think I'd be really wowed by what I was watching more so than now. But the, the truth is, is that I think the sort of larger scale when there's so many planes flying in the air, it's just not like the film doesn't quite capture how kinetic that could really be in, in real life. And I think what we've seen in more recent films, that's like a super obvious thing to say. And I think it's almost like scoff worthy to say that. But I think when the film is able to, really zero in on the one-on-one -on -one sequence. So like both dog fights between Donald and, and Porco Rosso. I think that's where the film excels a little bit more in the set pieces. Uh, and, and that sort of like focused, uh, smaller scale dog fight. 
I think the animation works really well for that. And yeah, the 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 fist fight at the end, I think, is is funny. I think it works well in sort of the context of redeeming Porco Rosso. Like he's clearly choosing not to shoot um Donald down. And even when he's going to shoot his engine out, like it fails. Like thematically, I just think it makes sense for them to duke it out in fist to fist combat at the end. And and you can sort of see his relationship with Gina. Although maybe a bit campy or, or 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 kitschy, it does sort of it is ultimately what lifts him in the fight and gets him to stand back up and and win and win the bout when he sort of hears the call from from Gina to to get up and I think that is like a an emotionally good payoff in the end as she sort of rushes to his aid and reminds him for probably you know the umpteenth time that he is you know worthy of her affection and love and I think contributes to that moment at the end of the film where you know, even if briefly his face does, you know, go back to its human, human form very briefly. I, I agree. I, I think, you know, the, the dog fighting stuff, we've seen a lot of flying action in these movies. I could take it or leave it at this point. I know there's, there's probably, there, there's probably more to come. Um, but um, I, I will say I'm looking forward, I think, to the next film and to, you know, the, uh, to Princess Mononoke and the more sort of traditional war action um in that 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 film has albeit with a heavy fan heavy dose of fantasy in it of course um yeah i mean i mean i know that we have only talked like adjacently about the aviation but we joke i think we've joked on and off all the time about how really this is that in every film there seems to be some flavor of flight or aviation like almost every film i'm sure there's like i guess in totoro there's not there's not an example of it, at least not off the top. Of I mean, my the, head. The, the bus is flying. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, never mind. It um, is no, yeah. <laughs> the real aviation is the bus, the cat bus we met along the way. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, how could I forget that? Well, shame on me. Uh, Cagliostro is their flight in Cagliostro. I think they're on. Are they on a? I feel like they might be on a plane at some. I feel point, like no? yes. Probably no, I don't know. But the point. the point is that it's it's such a common recurring theme in the films that it's funny that we're in his sixth film and he's actually finally has a has a literal like he has an actual a plane movie that is actually uh, about yeah uh, yeah about a plane not the last one um no. but it it certainly i think it's funny that we finally get the thing that miyazaki has been dancing around for you know five or six movies depending on how yeah. i guess how you how you count cagliostro indeed indeed and but, and uh, is super accurate to that as well like i think you know i think there's like a whole wikipedia page about or, or there's a section on the wikipedia page about the homage to early aviation and so sort of further sort of bolsters the notion um, that it's something that he deeply cares about. And, you know, it, The Wind Rises is a whole film about someone who who built planes. So, yeah. you know, it's 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 obviously something that, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But like we'll talk there about like, you know, how deeply emotional that aviation like is to him. I think it's like a, it's a super interesting facet of his interests that commonly recurs in almost every movie yeah i mean miyazaki's not the type of guy who, to do anything halfway i don't think but obviously yeah something that um pertains to what is clearly a an interest of his in, in flight um yeah i'm not surprised to hear that he went all the way with it in this movie and yeah like you said it, it won't be for the last time um but i do think it'll be nice like i said to have a change of pace with the next movie because um, we're definitely through the the vibes era now, I think, and we're we're on to something a lot bigger and more. I mean, the the vibes are always immaculate in, in Miyazaki movies, but uh, I think uh, you know it, it, we're not going to be sitting here asking what happened in this movie probably um, about the next you know few films to come. Although you know, I, I can't say for certain. I haven't seen Spirited Away or Ponyo. To be fair, I was going to say I think I think the two films that maybe are your blind spot in in, yeah, in the filmography sure. might might be two of the films you could describe as vibes. At least one of them for sure you could describe as a vibes movie. I think. Bring it on, I say. Um, yeah. Bring it on. All right. Uh, unless you guys have anything else to add, I think we can move into the wrap up for Porco Rosso. Um, uh, I just think that I don't think it's been said yet, so I just want to say it. Uh, don't be a pig yeah. and don't be a fascist. Yeah. Yes. Don't be either one. Yeah. Uh, but if you have to be one, the pig is better, like Jay said. Uh, Jay, favorite scene or moment from Porco Rosso? I, I've, I've, I've pinged 
ping pong between a few. I guess I'll just have to pick one now. I will go with the bedtime story scene. Um, you know, specifically like if we if we zero in on the moment where he is kind of having that like maybe hallucination, maybe moment with God, however you want to look at it, you know, when he sees the other pilots going up into the sky and it gets all quiet and you just see like the stream of lights across the sky, like, you know, very it was a gorgeous moment. Again, you know, it was one where we're getting that candor from Porco. It just in and it felt like one of those moments where, you know, again, the, the Keaton performance like started high, you know, wasn't really sure I felt about it in the middle, but it was definitely that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, like, well done. I think for me, I'm going to go for a section of the film that I didn't actually I don't actually think we spent much time on in it, but it was a supporting performance that I that I mentioned when I was talking about the cast that I really enjoyed. And that's the time he actually spends in Milan. I, I really do enjoy the time he spends working on the plane. Uh, look. Big energy to see Fio at the uh, at the design desk drawing up the plane. I think that is some of the cooler stuff in the film. I think it it sort of really shows you just to the point I was just making. It really shows you how inside baseball Miyazaki really is and wants to be on flight while not overwhelming the viewer. Um, and you know, he writes Fio a few lines to show just how uh, intelligent she is with aviation and how intelligent he is with aviation uh, as as well. And I think that comes off really well. But sp- the specific scene that I'm thinking of is just almost like the montage sequence where they're, he, I guess like Piccolo brings in like the broader family or like friends, uh, like all the women in to build the plane and the grandmothers. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Porco is like a little bit flabbergasted, I think by the whole thing, but then they're like eating around the dinner table and, I think that's I think that's like a really awesome scene. And and I think it'd be very easy. And I totally get saying the scene that Jay's talking about or or one of, you know, that that sort of climactic dogfight scene, I think is really, really cool. But I, I honestly feel like some of the the point where I really felt closest and most connected and really finally fully invested in the character was was this time in Milan. Like I felt like I really finally got over the hump when you see Porco not in, you know, veteran bounty hunter mode and you just see him a little bit more relaxed you get a taste of that i think with gina early on in the film and i think it's it starts to be fully realized here in milan when he's meeting theo for the first time you see mr piccolo etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah um i mean then you know i mentioned the fist fight I, I just really enjoy all of sort of the final moments of the film um even after the the fist fight happens the um you know, just the the sort of wrapping up of all the characters' arcs, and even even Gina just kind of being like, "All right, we we watch the fight. Now everybody, come over to the hotel, and we'll have a nice, you know, party." Yeah, wildly accepting of pirates. Uh, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> um, but then I like the epilogue too, and just sort of you know finding out what happened afterwards, and um, learning you know it, it, the sort of bittersweetness that obviously you know theo stays there with with gina eventually becomes the head of um of her grand grandfather's company but um you know she and porco in some regards are separated but we see the two that he's still making um room in his life for for them and we see his plane there at the end um at gina's so um yeah i, I enjoyed the epilogue as well um and i think it, it it's a nice bittersweet ending and it wraps everything up um, in a satisfying way. So um, let's put a score on it. Jay out of 10 Porco Rosso. It was a fun time. Can't go wrong with any of these so far. A little bit lower than the ones we've done recently, but still really enjoyed it. It was a 7.9 for me. 8.0. 8.5 for me. I really enjoyed it. Um, definitely one I could see myself coming back to. It feels like some nice pop on material, nice light watch. Um, Again, I, I really enjoy this one uh, and, and glad, you know, I was able to see it for the first time. All right. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. We have a bunch of tiers over there, but even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. Also, check out Some Like It, Scott, right here in the same feed where you found this episode, weekly movie reviews every single week of new films 
and of course, we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the Miyazaki Countdown, on which we will be reviewing Miyazaki's 1997 war epic Princess Mononoke. But until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.